Hello, my darling, and welcome to today's story time. But that offensive galley did not aim as far as Carter had feared, for he soon saw that the helmsman was steering a course directly for the moon. The moon was a crescent, shining larger and larger as they approached it, and showing its singular craters and peaks uncomfortably. The ship made for the edge, and it soon became clear that its destination was that secret and mysterious side which is always turned away from the earth, and which no fully human person, save perhaps the dreamer, Shninreth Ko, has ever beheld. The close aspect of the moon as the galley drew near proved very disturbing to Carter, as he did not like the shape and size of the ruins which crumbled here and there. The dead temples on the mountains were so placed that they could have glorified no wholesome or suitable gods. And in the symmetries of the broken columns, there seemed to lurk some dark and inner meaning which did not invite solution. And what the structure and proportions of the olden worshippers could have been, Carter steadily refused to conjecture. When the ship rounded the edge, and sailed over those lands unseen by man. There appeared in the strange landscape certain signs of life, and Carter saw many low, broad, round cottages and fields of grotesque, whitish fungi. He noticed that these cottages had no windows, and thought that their shapes suggested the huts of the Esquimalt. Then he glimpsed the oily waves of a sluggish sea, and knew that the voyage was once more to be by water, or at least through some liquid. The galley struck the surface with a peculiar sound, and the odd elastic way the waves received it was very perplexing to Carter. They now slid along at great speed, once passing and hailing another galley of kindred form but generally seeing nothing but that curious sea and a sky that was black and star-strewn, even though the sun shone scorchingly into it. There presently rose ahead the jagged hills of a leprous-looking coast, and Carter saw the thick, unpleasant gray towers of a city, the way they leaned and bent, the manner in which they were clustered, and the fact that they had no windows at all was very disturbing to the prisoner, and he bitterly mourned the folly which had made him sip the curious wine of that merchant with the humped turban. As the coast drew nearer, and the hideous stench of that city grew stronger, he saw upon the jagged hills many forests, some of whose trees he recognized as akin to that solitary moon tree in the enchanted wood of earth, from whose sap the small brown zoogs ferment their peculiar wine. Carter could now distinguish moving figures on the noisome wharfs ahead, and the better he saw them, the worse he began to fear and detest them, for they were not men at all, or even approximately men, but great, grayish-white, slippery things, which could expand and contract at will, and whose principal shape, though it often changed, 
was that of a sort of toad without any eyes, with a curiously vibrating mass of short pink tentacles on the end of its blunt, vague snout. These objects were waddling busily about the wharves, moving bales and crates and boxes with preternatural strength. And now and then, hopping on or off some anchored galley with long oars in their forepaws. And now and then, one would appear driving a herd of clumping slaves, which indeed were approximate human beings, with wide mouths. They were like the merchants who traded in Delathleen. Only these herds, being without turbans or shoes or clothing, did not seem so very human after all. Some of these slaves, the fatter ones, whom a sort of overseer would pinch experimentally, were unloaded from ships and nailed in crates, which workers pushed into low warehouses were loaded on great lumbering vans. Once a van was hitched up and driven off, and the fabulous thing which drew it was such that Carter gasped, even after having seen the other monstrosities of that hateful place. Now and then a small herd of slaves, dressed in turban like the dark merchants, would be driven aboard a galley, followed by a great crew of the slippery, grayed toad things, as officers navigators, and rowers. And Carter saw that the almost human creatures were reserved for the more ignominious kinds of servitude, the kinds that required no strength, such as steering and cooking, fetching and carrying, and bargaining with men on the earth or other planets where they traded. These creatures must have been convenient on earth, for they were truly not unlike men when dressed and carefully shod and turbaned, and could haggle in the shops of men without embarrassment or curious explanations. But most of them, unless lean and ill-favored, were unclothed and packed in crates and drawn off in lumbering lorries by fabulous things. Occasionally, other beings were unloaded and crated, some very like these semi-humans, some not so familiar, and some not similar at all. And he wondered if any of the poor stout men of Park were left to be unloaded and crated and shipped in land in those obnoxious drays, when the galley landed at a greasy-looking quay of spongy rock, a nightmare horde of toad things wiggled out of the hatches and two of them seized Carter and dragged him ashore. The smell and aspect of that city are beyond telling, and Carter held only scattered images of the tiled streets and black doorways and endless precipices of gray vertical walls with no windows. At length, he was dragged within a low doorway and made to climb infinite steps in pitch blackness, it was, apparently, all one to the toad things, whether it were light or dark. The odor of the place was intolerable, and when Carter was locked into a chamber and left alone, he scarcely had strength to crawl around and ascertain its form and dimensions. But it seemed circular, 
and about 20 feet across. From then on, time ceased to exist. At intervals, food was pushed in, but Carter would not touch it. What his fate would be, he did not know. But he felt that he was held by the coming of that frightful soul and messenger of Infinity's other gods, the crawling chaos, Nilarthotep. Finally, after an unguessed span of hours or days, the great stone door swung wide again, and Carter was shoved down the stairs, then out into the red-litten streets of that fearsome city. It was night on the moon, and all through the town were stationed slaves bearing torches. In the detestable square, a sort of procession was formed. Ten of the toad things and twenty-four almost human torch-bearers, eleven on either side, and one each before and behind. Carter was placed in the middle of the line, five toad things ahead and five behind, and one almost human torch-bearer on each side of him. Certain of the toad things produced disgustingly carven flutes of ivory and made loathsome sounds. To that hellish piping, the column advanced out of the tiled streets and into nighted plains of obscene fungi, soon commencing to climb one of the lower and more gradual hills that lay beyond the city. On some frightful slope or blasphemous plateau, the crawling chaos waited. Carter could not doubt, and he wished that the suspense might soon be over. The whining of those impious flutes were shocking, and he would have given worlds for some even half-normal sound. But these toad things had no voices, and the slaves did not talk. Then through that star-specked darkness, there did come a normal sound. It rolled from the higher hills, and from all the jagged peaks around, it was caught up and echoed in a swelling pandemic chorus. It was the midnight yell of the cat, and Carter knew at last that the old village folk were right when they made low guesses about the cryptical realms which are known only to cats, and to which the elders among cats repair by stealth nocturnally, springing from high housetops. Verily, it is to the moon's dark side that they go to leap and gamble on the hills and converse with ancient shadows. And here amidst that column of fetid things, Carter heard their homely, friendly cry, and thought of the steep roofs and warm hearths and little lighted windows of home. Now much of the speech of cats was known to Randolph Carter, and in this far, terrible place, he uttered the cry that was suitable, but that he need not have done. For even as his lips opened, he heard the chorus wax and draw nearer, and saw swift shadows against the stars as small, graceful shapes leaped from hill to hill in gathering legions. The call of the clan had been given, and before the foul procession had time to even be frightened, a cloud of smothering fur and a phalanx of murderous claws were tidily tempestuously upon it. The flutes stopped, and there were shrieks into the night, dying 
Almost humans screamed, and cats spit and yowled and roared. But the toad things made never a sound, as their stinking green ichor oozed fatally upon the porous earth with the obscene fungi. It was a stupendous sight while the torches lasted, and Carter had never before seen so many cats, black, gray, and white, yellow, tiger, and mixed, common, Persian, Manx, Tibetan, Angora, and Egyptian. All were there in the fury of battle, and there hovered over them some trace of that profound and inviolate sanctity which made their goddess great in the temple of Bubastis. They would leap seven strong at the throat of an almost human, or the pink tentacles snout of a toad thing, and drag it down savagely to the fungus plain, where myriads of their fellows would surge over it, and into it with the thick claws of frenzy and teeth of a divine battle fury. Carter had seized a torch from a stricken slave, but was soon overborne by the surging waves of his loyal defenders. Then he lay in the utter blackness, hearing the clangor of war and the shouts of the victors, and feeling the soft paws of his friends as they rushed to and fro over him in the fray. At last, awe and exhaustion closed his eyes, and when he opened them again, it was upon a strange scene. The great shining disk of the earth, thirteen times greater than that of the moon as we see it, had risen with floods of weird light over the lunar landscape. And across all those leagues of wild plateau and ragged crest, there squatted one endless sea of cats in orderly array. Circle on circle they reached, and two or three leaders out of the ranks were licking his face and purring to him consolingly. Of the dead slaves and toad things, there were not many signs, but Carter thought he saw one bone a little way off in an open space, just between him and the beginning of the solid circles of the warriors. Carter now spoke with the leaders in the soft language of cats, and learned that his ancient friendship with the species was well known and often spoken of in the places where cats congregate. He had not been unmarked in Ulthar when he passed through, and the sleek old cats had remembered how he petted them after they had attended to the hungry zoos who looked evilly at the small black kitten. And they recalled, too, how he had welcomed the very little kitten who came to see him at the inn, and how he had given the saucer a rich cream in the morning before he left. The grandfather of that very kitten was the leader of the army now assembled, for he had seen the evil procession from a far hill and recognized the prisoner of a sworn friend of his kind on earth and in the land of dream. A yowl now came from a farther peak, and the old leader paused abruptly in his conversation. It was one of the army's outposts, stationed on the highest of the mountains to watch the one foe which earth cats fear, the very large and peculiar cats from Saturn, 
who for some reason have not been oblivious of the charm of our moon's dark side. They are leagued by treaty with the evil toad things, and are notoriously hostile to our Earth's cats, so that at this juncture a meeting would have been a somewhat grave manner. After a brief consultation of generals, the cats rose and assumed a closer formation, crowding protectingly around Garter, and preparing to take the great leap through space back to the housetops of our Earth and its dreamland. The old field marshal advised Carter to let himself be borne along smoothly and passively in the massed ranks of furry leapers, and even told him how to spring when the rest sprang and land gracefully when the rest landed. He also offered to deposit him in any spot he desired, and Carter decided on the city of Dilathlene, whence the black galley had set out, for he wished to sail thence for Oriop in the craven crest of Negranek, and also to warn the people of the city to have no more traffic with the black galleys, if indeed that traffic could be tactfully and judiciously broken off. Then, upon a signal, the cats all leapt gracefully with their friend packed securely in their midst, while in a black cave, on a far, unhallowed summit of the moon mountains, there still vainly waited the crawling chaos Nilarthotep. The leap of the cats through space was very swift, and being surrounded by his companions, Carter did not see this time the great black shapelessness that lurked and caper and flounder in the abyss. Before he fully realized what had happened, he was back in his familiar room at the inn in Dilathlene, and the stealthy, friendly cats were pouring out of the window in streams. The old leader from Ulthar was the last to leave, and as Carter shook his paw, he said he would be able to get home by cockcrow. When dawn came, Carter went downstairs and learned that a week had elapsed since his capture and leaving. There was still nearly a fortnight to wait for the ship bound towards Oriop, and during that time he said what he could against the black galleys and their infamous ways. Most of the townsfolk believed him, yet so fond were the jewelers of great rubies that none would wholly promise to cease trafficking with the wide-mouthed merchants. If aught of evil ever befalls Dilathlene through such traffic, it will not be by Carter's fault. In about a week, the desiderate ship put in by the black mole and tall lighthouse, and Carter was glad to see that she was bark of wholesome men, with painted sides and yellow lateen sails and a gray captain in silken robes. Her cargo was the fragrant resin of Oriob's inner groves and the delicate pottery baked by the artists of Baharna and the strange little figures carved from Negranek's ancient lava. For this they were paid in the wool of Ulthar, in the iridescent textiles of Hothag, and the ivory that the black men carve across the river in Park. Carter made arrangements with the captain to go to Baharna, and was told that the voyage would take ten days. And during his week of waiting, he talked much with that captain of Negranek, 
and was told that very few had seen the carven face thereon, but that most travelers are content to learn its legends from old people and lava gatherers and image makers in Baharna. And afterward these people will say in their far homes that they have indeed beheld it. The captain was not even sure that any person now living had beheld the carven face, for the wrong side of Negranek is very difficult and barren and sinister, and there are rumors of caves near the peak wherein dwell the night gaunts. But the captain did not wish to say just what a night gaunt might be, since such cattle are known to haunt most persistently the dreams of those who think too often of them. Then Carter asked that captain about unknown Kadath in the cold waste and the marvelous sunset city, but of these the good man could tell nothing. And this, my darling, ends our story time for today. As always, I hope that you have very sweet and creepy dreams. Good night.